0: It's our custom at Thomas Aquinas College to begin the lecture series each year with a lecture on some aspect of liberal education. Integral to liberal education are what are commonly referred to as the seven liberal arts. The last two of these liberal arts are called astronomy and music. Astronomy and music have been considered part of liberal education since the time of ancient Greece. And they've been considered liberal arts since the Middle Ages. But they're both a little bit odd. And at best, it's not easy to see at first blush what they have to do with philosophy. So this is the question I want to consider tonight. In particular, I want to consider the order that these two sciences have to wisdom, the goal of all philosophy. So what is wisdom? We could derive a definition from many sources in our academic program, but the two most obvious places are the beginning of Aristotle's metaphysics and the beginning of St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. Each of these texts defines wisdom as the knowledge of the first, highest, and most universal cause of all things and of the order of all things to that first cause. The curriculum at Thomas Aquinas College is known for its commitment both to wisdom and to the liberal arts. The reason we study the liberal arts is that they have an intrinsic order to wisdom. Wisdom is the purpose of liberal education, for liberal education is the education of the free man. The free man lives for his own sake. That is, he lives for the sake of his own intrinsic perfection and goodness. But the perfection of man as such is wisdom. Therefore, we study the liberal arts for the sake of wisdom. Now, not every study has an intrinsic order to wisdom, though there may be an an extrinsic order. This is the case with the servile arts, for example. Other studies may have an intrinsic order to wisdom, but less immediately than others. The liberal arts are carefully chosen, therefore. They are those studies that have an intrinsic and immediate order to wisdom. Tonight, I want to justify this claim with particular respect to astronomy and music. I will therefore do three things. First, in part one of the lecture, I will briefly define the liberal arts and explain the principle according to which they've been selected. Second, in part two, I will show the special place that astronomy and music occupy among the liberal arts. I will show that these two astronomy and music have a special kinship to each other. They go together. Third, in part three, I will show the intrinsic order that astronomy and music bear to wisdom. So part one, there are seven liberal arts divided into the so-called trivium and quadrivium. We will dwell for a moment on these names. Of course, they're Latin. Trivium means literally the threefold way, or we could say the triple road. Likewise, quadrivium means the fourfold way. So we have two ways or roads into something. Into what? In his famous quotation, Hugh of St. Victor says that the liberal arts are the ways the lively mind takes into the secrets of philosophy. What is philosophy? It is wisdom, as Aristotle shows at the beginning of his metaphysics. So even in the names trivium and quadrivium, the liberal arts are conceived according to their order to wisdom. Let us begin by manifesting why the order to wisdom demands that the seven liberal arts be divided into these two roads or pathways, the trivium and the quadrivium. The arts of the trivium are concerned with human speech. What is speech? In Aristotle's work on interpretation, he defines speech as, quote, a vocal sound that is a symbol of something undergone by the soul, close quote. The chief kind of speech is what we might call an argument. An argument is a composition of statements tending necessarily towards some conclusion. There are three ways in which arguments can be considered. First, one can consider an argument simply insofar as it is ordered to some truth. This is the concern of logic, the first member of the trivium. The question the logician asks is, what things must be true of the premises of an argument if the conclusion that follows from them is to be true? Second, one can consider an argument insofar as it is ordered to some action. This is the the persuasive speech and it is the concern of rhetoric, the second art of the trivium. So we can account for logic and rhetoric among the liberal arts by noting that sometimes arguments are simply ordered to truth or knowledge, while other times arguments are ordered to bringing about some human action, especially on the political scene. What about grammar? It's the third art of the trivium. The concern of grammar is the sentence itself. The sentence is the instrument or tool of argument making since all arguments are composed of sentences. Grammar deals with the principles according to which sentences are well-formed. Consequently, grammar is related to logic and rhetoric as the art that provides their instruments. This, is rela- this relationship is similar to that in an example that Aristotle employs at the beginning of his Nicomachean Ethics, which the juniors are just now reading, namely the relationship of bridle making to horsemanship. The bridle maker designs the instrument of the rider or horseman. Similarly, grammar designs the instrument of the logician and of the rhetorician. So we have a basic account of the division of the trivium into grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Now, why are these three arts devoted to human speech called liberal arts? St. Thomas explains this name in his commentary on Boethius de Trinitate. I'll be referring to this passage throughout the lecture. The text is the reply to the third objection in question five, article one. Let us begin with the following point. Aristotle distinguishes arts from the other kinds of knowledge by the order that arts have to making. Every art is a kind of knowledge, but some kinds of knowledge are simply ordered to truth and nothing further. Other kinds of knowledge are ordered beyond the truth to some human action, but arts are ordered to making or fashioning. Our previous example of bridal making is an obvious example of an art. Others are carpentry, medicine, and teaching. Before going further, let us dwell a bit longer on the notion of an art. Aristotle distinguishes between kinds of knowledge. One kind of knowledge he calls speculative. When he calls it speculative, however, he does not mean what we generally mean by the word today, namely uncertain or hypothetical. Rather, he means that the purpose of such knowledge is simply to see it, simply to look at it, simply to know its truth. This knowledge is essentially a gazing. This feature, in fact, characterizes the noblest knowledge there is. Any knowledge that is desirable for its own sake, simply to possess the truth is is nobler than a knowledge that is desirable only for the sake of some product separate from itself, which it generates. This is because we consider anything desirable for itself more worthy of desire than something which is desirable only for something else. So one kind of knowledge, the highest is speculative knowledge. The second kind is practical knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge that the juniors are beginning to investigate in the ethics. I remember uh, 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 still with great clarity at Don Rags that I participated in a few years ago where a junior was bewailing the difficulty of the, the junior scene. She'd been a freshman and a sophomore and she thought she was getting used to TAC. And uh, all of a sudden the math was Descartes and not Euclid. Philosophy was practical <laughs> and she didn't know what to do. How do, <laughs> <I> <laughs> how do I understand practical knowledge? So the juniors, yeah, you, you, you'll understand soon. Practical knowledge is for the sake of action. Reasoning that we undertake in order to determine how we should act in some determinate circumstance is ordered to more than the knowledge. It terminates in the action itself. So we call it practical knowledge. Uh, Practical comes from the Greek word praxis, which is closely related to the Latin word actio. so you have the idea of action embedded in that name. Art is distinct even from practical knowledge in that it is ordered not merely to doing, but to making. And this requires a different sort of habit of mind. Whereas practical knowledge is ordered properly speaking to human acts, art is ordered to working with a material. The artist properly speaking is the one who takes some material and generates something with a new form out of that material, such as a statue, a house or a healthy body. One immediate result of this difference is that practical knowledge is ordered directly to human goodness. The question, how ought I to act right now in this given circumstance, is immediately related to virtue and vice, since the act chosen will be either good or evil. But the question, how can I make this sort of something out of this certain material? A statue out of bronze, for example, is not immediately related to virtue and vice. A man could act superbly in virtue of artistic knowledge and still be acting wickedly. As in the case of a painter or a musician whose work is flawlessly executed but intended for concupiscence. Or in the case of a doctor who uses his knowledge to kill rather than to heal. It can be seen from this sketch that speculative knowledge and art are by definition opposed to each other. Speculative knowledge terminates in virtue of what it is in the mind itself, since since it is ordered to nothing beyond the truth, which it knows. Art terminates in some material outside the mind and the perfection of the art is in that thing. This opposition sets up an interesting difficulty we'll have to face later on, for we want to see how it is possible that the members of the trivium and the quadrivium are rightly called both speculative sciences and arts at the same time. This point will have everything to do with that quality by which they're called liberal. Grammar, rhetoric, and logic are all arts. This is because there is in each of them some work or product, an opus as St. Thomas says. In grammar, the work is chiefly the sentence. In rhetoric and logic, it is the argument or syllogism. So supposing we grant that grammar, rhetoric, and logic are all arts, why do we call them liberal arts, thus implying a direct order to freedom? St. Thomas gives the answer in the De Trinitate commentary. He says that, quote, they involve not only knowledge but also a work that is directly a product of reason itself. They're called arts because they're ordered to a definite work or opus, They're called liberal because their works are immediately of reason itself. That is, their works are not corporeal, not of the body, but of the immaterial mind. St. Thomas goes on to distinguish the liberal arts from the servile arts. The servile arts involve corporeal works like houses and bridles. Of the servile arts, St. Thomas says, these latter then cannot be called liberal arts because such activity belongs to man on the side of his nature in which he is not free, namely on the side of his body. Now, how are the arts of the quadrivium distinct from those of the trivium? Again, the trivium is concerned with human speech. The quadrivium by contrast is composed of mathematical sciences. Here's what St. Thomas says about this distinction. Quote, the philosopher, referring to Aristotle, also says in the ethics, that the young can know mathematics, but not physics, because it requires experience. The young (laughs) cannot, uh, can know mathematics, but not physics, because it requires experience. So we are given to understand that after logic, we should learn mathematics, which the quadrivium concerns. These then are like paths leading the mind to the other philosophical disciplines. So we're thinking about math here in a philosophical way, math as a philosophy. uh, I think it's one of the most amazing experiences you have as a freshman at this college to discover that. Eventually you realize Euclid is not math. (laughs) Uh, I had this uh, experience very distinctly um, as a freshman. I remember the evening when I realized this and it was like a new awakening in my soul. It was just amazing. And then uh, uh, there was an uh, an older student uh, in our section who had advanced uh, an advanced mathematical degree already. And so he had lots of experience with math, right? Uh, And there was one day when, uh, uh, while contemplating on what Euclid was doing, he was led to say this, this Euclid, he's from Bulgaria. (laughs) This Euclid, he no mathematician. (laughs) He philosopher. (laughs) <laughs> it pretty much says it all. <coughs> so note first the order implicit in St. Thomas' statement. It is natural for the young or the beginners on the road to wisdom to begin with the sciences concerned with human speech. This is because progress in the other sciences depends on these. Just as grammar fashions the tools employed by logic, so logic fashions the tools employed by anyone engaging in scientific argument. Consequently before we can adequately progress in mathematics, we must study logic. But I want to draw your attention to a very interesting feature of the account we've just heard St. Thomas give. If we study logic to progress in mathematics, we study mathematics in order to progress in the science of nature or physics. This is the relationship we will consider next. If the quadrivium concerns the mathematical sciences, we must begin by seeing how these sciences are divided from one another. for there's not just one science here, but four. Geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music. Then we must consider the order of these sciences to wisdom. Notice here that the very name mathematics means learning. One might say that mathematics receives its name from its singular order to speculative knowledge. Again, our attention will be given chiefly to astronomy and music, which are in this connection of the greatest interest. Aristotle in his categories, which the freshmen will be reading soon, shows that there are two genera of quantity, two kinds of quantity, the subject universally treated by mathematics. These are continuous quantity and discrete quantity, magnitude and number. There are, two quanti- there are two quantitative questions that we ask about things, namely how much and how many. When we ask the question, how much is it? We're trying to get to know the dimensions of something. How much wheat is there in storage? One bushel. This measure is of length, breadth, and depth. How many potatoes are left? Three potatoes. This measure is of number. Number is a different genus than length, breadth, and depth. And so the science that treats the former necessarily begins from different principles than that which treats the latter. The science of number is arithmetic. The science of dimension is geometry. Now, as you know, arithmetic and geometry are the first two arts of the quadrivium. These are followed by astronomy and music. There are two instructive questions we can ask about music and astronomy. First, why are they added to arithmetic and geometry? In what way are arithmetic and geometry insufficient as liberal arts? Second, why are music and astronomy the only sciences to be added? Surely there's a whole host of mathematical sciences that could be studied. Why are music and astronomy alone among all these sciences considered liberal arts? Both of these questions, namely, why must music and astronomy be added? And why must these alone be added tend to this question? In what way are music and astronomy perfective or completing of the liberal arts? Before we answer this question, let us consider arithmetic and geometry a little more closely. As with the trivium, we must ask concerning these sciences, both why they are considered arts and then why they are considered liberal arts. As we said above, art is knowledge that terminates in making in some work or opus. The opus in grammar was the sentence, in logic, the syllogism. As the freshmen will discover later this year, the opus in the case of rhetoric is what Aristotle will call the enthymeme, a particular variety of syllogism. But what are the opera of arithmetic and geometry? Here it is important to remind ourselves of a basic distinction. We spoke earlier of the distinction between speculative knowledge and art and we pointed out that they seem to be opposed to each other insofar as speculative knowledge terminates in a good that is in the intellect alone, while art terminates in a good outside the mind in some exterior material. However, in the present case, this opposition does not exist. It is clear that arithmetic and geometry are both speculative sciences. The reason is that they are pursued simply for the sake of truth. They are not pursued for the sake of any action on our part and they do not terminate in any product generated in exterior material. However, it is also true that there is a making or a production that is intrinsic to these two sciences. Geometry, for example, assumes the existence of the things that are first in the various genera it considers. In the genus of plane figure, for example, it assumes the existence of the circle as in Euclid's third postulate to describe a circle with any given center and radius. But it, demonstrates the ex- but it demonstrates the existence of the others. So it assumes the first things in the genus, it demonstrates the existence of the others. For example, through the circle, the geometrician demonstrates the existence of the equilateral triangle. That is, he shows how the existence of the triangle is derived from the circle as from a first and immediate principle. However, the geometrician does this precisely by constructing the triangle through the description of circles. Consequently, the demonstration has an artistic aspect. The difference we find between geometry as an art and the other arts we've been discussing like carpentry is that the product or opus is not fashioned in any exterior matter. Rather, it is fashioned in the human soul itself, either in the intellect or if not entirely in the intellect in the imagination of the reasoner. This note brings us back to the claim made by St. Thomas in the De Trinitate commentary, quote, we may add that among the other sciences, these are called arts because they involve not only knowledge but also a work or opus that is directly a product of reason itself. We may also add that this artistic aspect is unique to the mathematical sciences. Mathematics is both a speculative science and an art. This is not true of either natural philosophy or of metaphysics. The other two divisions of speculative philosophy. This difference is due to the abstract character of mathematics, which considers its object without reference to the material principles in which that object actually exists. Maybe triangles can only exist in chalk and wood and bronze the mathematician doesn't consider them that way. Because reason separates mathematical forms from matter in order to consider them, it is able to treat them as though they were products of reasons own synthetic activity. And this is why although nothing considered by mathematics is not received by the mind in some way through sensation, it often appears as though the mind has fashioned these objects independently of any influence from the senses. So this amounts to a brief argument that it is appropriate to consider geometry and arithmetic as both speculative sciences and arts, indeed as liberal arts. Now let us consider music and astronomy. Again, I want to consider two things with respect to these sciences. First, how they complete the quadrivium, and second, how they bear an intrinsic order to wisdom. I will consider the first question now in part two of the lecture, and the second afterward in part three. So part two. Astronomy and music. As we've done with the other liberal arts, let us begin by defining and distinguishing music and astronomy. At first sight, these seem like very different, even randomly selected sciences. Astronomy and music. how do you get those together? They don't look like they have anything to do with each other. Indeed, and I think this is a really important consideration, <coughs> One might even suspect them both of being mere hobbies. Most of th- most of us treat them that way. We grow up thinking about them that way. But these sciences are anything but hobbies and they have a tremendous kinship. Both can be considered considered at once as the knowledge of the ratios of periodic movement. It's a mouthful, right? We'll be developing that idea. The knowledge of the ratios of periodic movement. In his Republic, Plato says that whereas geometry is the science of planes and of solids by themselves, astronomy is the science of solids in motion. He then goes on to describe the science of music as the antistrophe of astronomy. The antistrophe is the part of the element in a Greek tragic chorus that sings the counterpoint, if you will. So you have a a kind of a rhythmic song going back and forth, the strophe singing one, the antistrophe replying. So not only does Plato describe them as being akin to each other, but he uses a a musical image to emphasize that. For whereas astronomy is the knowledge of motion as perceived by the eyes, music is the knowledge of motion as perceived by hearing. But what kind of knowledge are we talking about? In both cases, the knowledge resolves to the appreciation of certain ratios that stand as principles to the motions that are being described. This is most obvious in music. So we're thinking about ratios as principles now. If I take two harp strings made of the same material and identical engage, but one is twice as long as the other and I pluck them both, the longer string generates a tone that is precisely one octave lower than the shorter string does. If the longer string is one and a half times longer, the tones will make a perfect fifth. If it is one and a third times longer, a perfect fourth. These relationships can also be described as the ratios two to one, three to two, and four to three. Western music has always centered on these three intervals for reasons the juniors will be discussing this year. They're foundational to tonal melody. It is remarkable therefore that they are generated by the smallest possible whole number ratios and you can't get ratios smaller than this, two to one, three to two, four to three. Is there a relationship here between music and arithmetic? There certainly is for we're dealing with whole number ratios, but note this further point, the tones themselves that we hear when we pluck the strings are themselves generated by vibrations. The strings, as they vibrate, create waves in the air that strike our ears and so make the vibrations of the strings audible. But what are these vibrations? They're periodic movements of the strings back and forth, movement in a circle. Moving from the beginning back to the beginning again. When the strings, when the lengths of the strings have the ratio of two to one, it also happens that the frequencies of the vibrations of the strings are in the same ratio, the longer string having the lower frequency. And so it makes sense to describe music as the science of audible periodic movement. Astronomy has a similar character. The sophomores have probably just finished reading Plato's Timaeus. In that dialogue, Timaeus is inquiring into the principles of the heavenly bodies, that is the stars and the planets. He gives an account of the origin of the various orbits of the planets. There's a very remarkable feature of this account that you can't help but notice. You might not notice that you've noticed it, but it's been nagging at you. This remarkable feature is that Timaeus supposes that the planets and their motions are all carefully conceived parts of a larger whole. Most of us don't think this way nowadays about the planets. We think of them as separate bodies doing their own thing and only involved with one another by chance. That there are eight, nine, or 10 planets in the solar system is only a matter of chance, not the decision of a deliberate artist. But this is not Timaeus' view. There's an account of the number of the planets, but much more importantly, there's an account of the relationships between the speeds of the orbits to one another and of the distances of each orbit orbit from the center of all orbital motion. Notice again, the presence of ratio and typical of Plato. Notice also that not just any ratios are used by Timaeus to account for these orbits. It is once again, the smallest possible whole number ratios that are used. That is the ratios that are used are the musical ones, two to one, three to two and four to three. Incidentally, these same ratios dominate the comparison of the five perfect solids at the end of book 13 of Euclid's Elements. I don't think this is an accident, either for Plato or for Euclid. I have a theory that I'm haven't gone far in developing, but it's an interesting one that uh, much of book 13, if not all of it was written by Euclid, at least for one reason to prepare the student for the reading of Plato's Timaeus, which is interesting to think about since we're thinking about mathematical study as tending toward natural philosophy. Now, what do these observations show just that music and astronomy as Plato conceives them are mathematical in character and that they both involve a mathematical account of the periodic motions of bodies based on the smallest possible whole number ratios. Now let us pause here to distinctly notice two important points we've just made. First, music and astronomy consist in an application of arithmetic and geometry to the actually existing cosmos as experienced by sight and hearing. Second, this application is made explicitly with reference to sensible periodic motion. Let us consider these two points. First, music and astronomy are mathematical sciences consisting principally in the knowledge of certain fundamental ratios. I think that in many ways, this claim is the point of Plato's Timaeus. What happens to the human soul when it recognizes that the basic motions of its experience submit themselves to a mathematical order that is very simple and so readily intelligible. This is the basic experience that convinces us that science, that knowledge of the things of our experience is possible. Motion isn't just chaos. When we further recognize that this order belongs to the whole cosmos at once and to its parts through it, rather than to its parts in separation from each other and willy-nilly, we began to grow in confidence that a scientific account of the whole, what both Plato and Aristotle call the all, the all, is also possible. It is precisely the sort of knowledge that is the knowledge of the universal whole that has the character of wisdom. We'll develop this thought further in part three. But before pursuing that, let us notice again the second point just made, namely that music and astronomy are knowledge precisely of motion. This is a point of enormous importance. Returning for a moment to St. Thomas de Trinitate commentary, we recall St. Thomas making the following claim, quote, the philosopher also says in the ethics that the young can know mathematics but not physics because it requires experience. So we are given to understand that after logic, we should learn mathematics, which the quadrivium concerns. These then are like paths leading the mind to the other philosophical disciplines, close quote. Notice the implication of these words. The mathematical sciences have a unique role to play in the education of the young, the beginners on the road to wisdom. Because of their abstract character, they are readily learned without much experience of the world. This is not true of physics or the science of nature, sort of a standing joke that if you're going to teach philosophy, you have to have gray hair. Uh, that's not true of math, <laughs> so far as I can tell from my experience in graduate school. But if you're teaching philosophy, you're expected to have gray hair. So my, f- my first teaching assignment out uh, uh, of college was an uh, adjunct introduction to philosophy course at a community college in the Houston area uh, area I was maybe 23 24 years old Uh, skinny as a rail Uh, uh, looked like a boy I went around in a sweatshirt jacket with a backpack slung over my left shoulder the bankers at my bank asked me if I was old enough to have an account I walk into this first philosophy class that I've taught in my whole career. I right, know I've got great plans, big ideas, all this stuff. I walk up to the podium and those 18 year old kids are all looking at me. And there's this blonde right in the middle of the room, obviously with a little more pluck than the rest. She looks at me and she says, you're not the teacher, are you? <laughs> that was my great beginning. physics requires an extensive experience because it is not dealing with an abstract, but with a sensible reality. It's not dealing with forms that are separated from the conditions of their actual existence and separately. So considered rather, it is dealing with forms that exist in material conditions, precisely insofar as they exist in those conditions. On the other hand, it is precisely physical science that begins to take on the character of wisdom because it is physical science that first attempts to give an account of the whole cosmic reality of the world. Recall the definition of wisdom with which we began the knowledge of the first cause of all things and the knowledge of the order of all things to their first cause. So we can begin to appreciate the sort of knowledge that music and astronomy are reaching for. Now, before discussing wisdom as such, we want to see a few more details about music and astronomy that will further assist us for really we've not yet adequately distinguished them as liberal arts, so let us begin with music. There are really three ways in which music can be studied intellectually. Intellectual study of music is distinct from moral training. Your parents regulate the music you listen to because it has a powerful and fundamental effect on your moral character, but this this is training, not study. When we study music intellectually, we can see it as a fine art, as a part of politics, or as a liberal art our topic tonight. To study music as a fine art is to study it with a view to composition, performance, and so on. The fine arts are distinct from the servile arts in that they're ordered principally to (coughs) delight rather than to the basic uses of survival. For this reason, the fine arts are closer to the liberal arts than are the servile arts. For example, the fine arts are products of leisure while the servile arts are unleisurely. Nevertheless, the fine arts are not yet liberal. The reason is that liberal studies always have truth as such as their end, not simply pleasure. Truth is the noble good. Pleasure is noble when it is in accord with right desire, that is when it is guided by truth. Consequently, because they hover in the neighborhood of the beautiful, the fine arts can act effectively in the service of the truth and therefore of liberal studies. That is why we have concerts at the college as part of the curriculum, as Dean Goyette pointed out. But the fine arts are not themselves liberal studies. To study music as a part of politics is to come to know it just insofar as it tends to result in certain characters and certain actions. Every political community is ruled by a regime or a constitution. And every regime seeks to make its citizens of the sort that will perfect that regime. Again, music of different kinds tends to generate different characters. The reason for this is that moral character consists in a certain formation of the passions of the soul, but music powerfully imitates the passions of the soul through an intrinsic likeness. Therefore, musical training is a component of the education of citizens employed by any political regime and the regime must know music to the degree that it sees what sort of music will tend to generate that character that is most consistent with the regime. Now, what is music as a liberal study? First, a note about the name. The name music refers principally to poetic song, the Iliad, for example. This is the gift inspired by the muses When Socrates turns to music as a liberal study in book seven of the Republic, he calls it harmonics. The reason for this is that its principal subject is what the Greeks called harmonia, which is the name of the various modes or musical scales of which there are seven that are the matrices of any tonal melody. We're most familiar with two of these nowadays, the so-called Ionian and Aeolian modes, which very nearly to what we would call the major and the minor keys. And here is perhaps the chief thing the Greeks were thinking about when they approached music as a liberal art. The principal work or opus of the science of harmonics is the musical scale. And the scale is built out of the very numerical ratios we've been discussing, namely two to one, three to two, and four to three. Timaeus describes the manner in which the scale is so built. By considering the musical scale through the numerical principles that generate it in the first place, we can see the principles of music precisely as a nature and therefore with reference to nothing more than the truth about the cosmos. This is music as a liberal study. So this is a point about music that will help us move forward in the quest for wisdom. Now, how is astronomy a liberal art? First, let us notice a difference. Unlike the case of music, there's no fine art of astronomy, so far as I know, nor is there a political art of astronomy. The reason is that we can produce the musical scale with our voices and on instruments, but we cannot produce the celestial motions in this way. However, there is a manner in which we can produce them, and this production is what gives astronomy the character of a liberal art. As with all mathematical sciences, astronomy involves constructions. Just as the geometrician constructs triangles and squares in order to know them, so the astronomer constructs geometrical models of motions. There's no single thing that Ptolemy, for example, does in the Almagest that is more important than the construction of the eccentric and epicyclical circles that form the backbone of the hypotheses he uses to explain what we see in the night sky. These constructions give astronomy the character of an art. And it is clear that this art is liberal because its goal is nothing more than truth. This point, by the way, is worth emphasizing here, though it's a little incidental to the lecture, namely the brilliance of Ptolemy's use of circles in the Almagest, especially when you get to books nine and 12. You'll often hear people say that we study Ptolemy at the college, quote, in spite of the fact that he's wrong, Well, this makes it sound like we're reading, only reading Ptolemy for his historical value. There is indeed much historical value to the reading of Ptolemy. Nevertheless, nothing could be further from the truth in this opinion. You will find if you attend closely to the matter that Ptolemy's original demonstrations concerning the organization of circles guide the work of astronomers into the 20th century. Even authors like Kepler and Newton are still working out the consequences of Ptolemy's principles. This is a sign of a genius of the first order, one who's discovered fundamental truths about the nature of the cosmos. Uh, this comment's just given by way of encouragement. Uh, uh, one aspect of my conversion to the philosophical life as a student at TAC was falling in love with Euclid. The second step was falling in love with Ptolemy. I didn't think there could be anything more beautiful than Euclid, but then here comes Ptolemy. and It's just, a <laughs> wow. <laughs> so we're dealing with Serious stuff here. There are things that Ptolemy sees about the orbits of the planets with such sharpness of insight that you'll find both Kepler and Newton returning to them even in the 17th century. So these reflections show how we can think of music and astronomy as liberal arts, but how are they perfective of the quadrivium? First notice that the fact that Ptolemy uses circles to explain the motions of stars and planets also necessitates that the motions explained be periodic, that is returning back to their beginning. So what music and astronomy really amount to as Plato says in the Republic is mathematics applied to periodic motion. I would like to put forward a thesis which I will immediately defend in part three of the lecture, namely that the purpose of the quadrivium is to introduce the beginner in philosophy, that is you all to motion in a universal manner, and therefore to the world of natural philosophy or physics. Neither music nor astronomy is natural philosophy, at least not when they're treated like liberal arts, but they do provide us with a powerful introduction to natural (coughs) philosophy. And natural philosophy is the first knowledge that can truly be called wisdom. Both astronomy and music